0: Special thanks to C.H.R. Hansen, a leader in fermentation and innovative brewing solutions. C.H.R. Hansen's range of high-quality yeasts includes Smart Bev Nir, which crafts flavorful beer entirely without the alcohol. These yeasts even enable fast, climate-friendly, and cost-efficient production. We thank C.H.R. Hansen for their support and commitment to excellence in brewing. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. A volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Let's go! 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 go, go. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. Calm
1: down, I'm moving too
0: fast. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors.
2: Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how
0: Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Berkeley Yeast, creators of diacetyl-free yeast strains. Diacetyl-free strains are bioengineered to produce the ALDC enzyme inside the yeast cell to keep diacetyl low during fermentation and after packaging. Diacetyl-free strains create the cleanest flavor profile possible, which makes them the yeast of choice for the most exacting brewer. Go to berkeleyeast.com to read about how brewers are using diacetyl-free strains to propel their beers to the top of the podium. Grist Analytics captures and trends data across the brewery so you can see issues as they are happening, not several batches later. Get real-time feedback on the brew deck, analyze correlations from the lab, and see scheduling predictions from anywhere. Connect Grist with your ERP platform to cover your brewery from production to finance. What you're about to hear originally aired in May of 2020. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode that you won't want to miss.
3: So when you look at the color of the oak, you really have no idea how it's been toasted and what kind of flavor profile you're gonna get out of that. You know, you take the temperature up and down or or apply it in a different way. For example, you could do a convection oven, you could do a a fire toast, you can do infrared, um, and they're all gonna create different flavors.
0: This week on the show, we take a deep dive into oak barrels. You'll hear about the properties of oak, the different types, and all about the complexities of seasoning and toast.
3: My name is Amy LeHue. I'm the sales manager for Oak Solutions Group, um, which is a subsidiary of Independent Stave Company.
1: My name is Andrew Webrink, and I am director of spirits
2: research for Independent Stave Company. My name is Noah Steingraver, and I am the national and international Salesman for Kentucky Bourbon Barrel, a used barrel cooperage in Louisville, Kentucky, and also a subsidiary of Independent Stave.
0: Why is oak such a popular material for barrels?
3: Oak is a popular uh of wood for barrels because it's liquid tight it's full of tannin which also adds to the flavor it's very strong it's um, resistant to to any kind of decay or fungal and insect attack Um, and that's partly because of the tannins that are intrinsic in oak and so it makes it um, a lot of qualities that that add to what we're looking for in a barrel
0: Talk about how some of the various constituents of oak interact with barrel-aged beer and or spirits.
3: So, if you look at the components of oak, you're looking mainly at cellulose, which is about forty-five percent of of the makeup of that tree, and that really does very little for flavor. It's mostly there. Um, to transport extractives and kind of serves as the skeleton of the tree, the backbone, if you will. The flavor comes from the hemicellulose, which is around between 20 and 25 percent um, of the constituents, and hemicellulose is wood sugar. And if you think of wood sugar, think of, you know, if you put sugar in a pan and added heat to it, you would create, John, what is it? Caramel. Good, you did it. <laughs> so that's what we're doing is when we add heat and start toasting that hemicellulose, that wood sugar, we're breaking it down into different caramels, and so so those are the flavors that we're adding, and and also colors. Um, to whatever beverage you're putting it on in this case beer Um, then another component is lignin and it's approximately 25 percent it also helps with the color but basically when we break that lignin down we create vanillin which gives you your vanilla like um, flavor profile and so if you think about vanilla and caramel those are two of the most complex flavors Uh, on earth as far as the human palate can discern. And it is represented by uh, the most popular beverage on earth, Coca-Cola, which is a combination of vanilla and caramel. And so it's fun for us to get to play with different levels of those two very complex flavors uh, to create different different flavors from the oak. And so the way we manipulate it with heat is, is, and the transformation of those two main things uh, gives us the majority of the flavor. There's also um, an oak tannin structure. um, And that adds some, some mouthfeel, some complexity. Um, A lot of times uh, it's, uh, it's more weight on the palate so much than it is a flavor. Um, And then on the wine side, it can be used for color stability. Um, on the beer side, it, it's more adding complexity and and texture to and weight to the palate.
0: I saw that uh, tannins can actually also help remove off notes as well. Talk about that a little bit.
3: Yeah, and that's that's something that is more prevalent on the wine side. Okay, where. You can have a vegetal wine, uh, and the tannin will come in and kind of pull out those those vegetative characteristics. Uh, Andrew, can you speak more to the beer side and specifically that tannin?
1: Not necessarily the beer side, but I mean, you know, tannin, it does have removal off notes. I mean, some of the byproducts, you know, you're going to get are be the, the elastic acid and the gallic acids, and, you know, by themselves— They do not necessarily have, you know, any kind of flavor input or any kind of flavor alteration to, you know, whatever's coming in contact with it. But through the combination of other compounds, those two acids can help to, you know, essentially mask other components through their combination with them Um, is kind of the way that works. Um, And then I also kind of want to go back to the lignin there and, you know, kind of just expand on that a little bit more. You know, if we look at like cellulose and hemicellulose, for the most part, I mean, you know kind of like polysaccharides, right? It's just a bunch of, you know, cellulose is a bunch of glucose molecules, um, you know, all chained together. Hemicellulose has a bunch of different sugar molecules all chained together. Lignin, you know, is this humongous branch polymer, so not only does it give you vanillin, but it also goes to like a wide range of flavors, right? So, you know, if you look at the lignin degradation chain, you're going to start, you know, vanillin, you're going to get into the eugenols, um, you know, which are kind of your clove, baking spices, that kind of stuff. You degrade it even further further um you get down into kind of some smokier uh you know spicier components so um you know lignin is uh it's, it's a source for a lot of different flavor categories
0: what are the most common or maybe most important flavor contributions from oak and is that the same for beer as it is for spirits or different
2: uh, i'll speak to the the beer side i know that the flavor profiles from the uh, vanillin or the vanilla Uh, definitely are what the brewers are kind of seeking especially when they're barrel aging uh, a lot of their beers so to complement all those you know those chocolatey stouts the porters and whatnot they like to have that they like the more vanilla forward profile so i know that's one of the things that people are always looking for as far as brewers go the second one would be uh uh, where is it? Uh, uh, Andrew, you'll have to correct me. The Cislactone, I believe, is the coconut profile? Uh, yes, that's correct. So yeah, then the Cislactone, you know, a lot of brewers are looking for that coconut profile and that character as well.
0: What's the difference between American and French oak?
3: There are several differences. One of the main ones is that French oak has about 10% tannin by weight, whereas American oak has a maximum of two percent tannin by weight uh, so so that's going to have a different uh effect f- from from coloring uh tannins add more color and darkness um french oak is going to have more of those antioxidants it's going to have a heavier mouthfeel uh, american oak has a different uh, lactone ratio. It's got a lactone ratio of 10 to 1 where French oak has a lactone ratio of 2 to 1. And what that means from a flavor profile is that you're going to have a lot more of those coconut and celery compounds in it. Um, Another different difference is that American oak is just intrinsically a little more intense and you you can tend to get a few more woody notes, uh, particularly if you're toasting for a short time or at a a low temperature. Um, And if you increase that time and temperature, you get more smoke notes. Um, So it's just there's just a little more intensity. Uh, As far as density, French oak is a lot less dense than American oak. Um, so anything we do, like if we, for example, we have two different high vanilla toasts. One is American oak and one is French oak. And those recipes are, are different, uh, to try and extract the same flavor, but a different mouthfeel because of the tannins. Um, but those, those recipes have to be completely different because of the density. So French oak actually weighs less.
0: And, and French oak is handled differently than American oak, right?
3: Yes, it is. So, American oak when it is when it's milled, when it when it goes through the mill, it's quarter sawn and that process is fairly economical. Um so that's why typically American oak costs quite a bit less. French oak um in order to be liquid tight. Now, again on the alternative side, this is not accurate because we don't we don't quarter split by hand and we're not worried about liquid integrity. on on oak alternatives but with a barrel we are and french oak has to be split by hand uh, because every stave has to be in line with the radial rays uh, to keep from leaking and that's i mentioned tyloses earlier Uh, american oak has a lot more tyloses and that helps to keep it liquid tight which is why we have we can mill it in this quarter sawn fashion Whereas French oak doesn't have this Tyloses, which I don't, Andrew, you can probably explain it better. But I say it's kind of like on the molecular level, it's like chewing gum in the cells and it plugs up everything so it doesn't leak out. Um, do you want to give that a more technical description, Andrew?
1: No, I, well, I mean, essentially, that's exactly what it is. You know, trees have these little cells and that's what they're made up of. And those cells stack up on top of each other and they make essentially uh, vessels, uh, and on either end of those cells, uh, you have tylosis forming. Now, um, you know, it forms for a variety of different reasons. It could be for, you know, if the tree is having some kind of attack, whether it be like an insect, fungal, bacteria, something like that. Essentially, what happens is uh, that tylosis forms, prevents that from being uptook farther up into the tree. Um, but, you know, the main source of tylosis, at least in American oak, and I would probably say for French oak as well. Um, would be the transition of the white wood in, into the heartwood. Um, so that transition period forms a lot of that tyloses. Do you want to
0: talk about what grain tightness means?
3: So we classify all the oak that comes through as extra fine, fine, or coarse grain. And so your extra fine is going to have a, a lot more of those large early early growth pores and closer together whereas fine grain they're a little more spread out and coarse grain they're much further and you think of it as when you're a kid and you cut down a tree and you count the rings you know to see how old it is that's what you're doing but that ring that you count is early growth and then the part in between is late growth Um, and so the extra fine grain has those large large Cell formations and it's much easier for the liquid to get in and access the flavor and come out, Uh, particularly when you're looking on the wine side, something like, you know, a short contact time and cooler temperatures, it is it's. You can get more flavor with some extra fine grain. Now, when you're looking at whiskey and you've got, you know, four or five, six years in a rick house in very cold temperatures, very hot temperatures, it's going to push that liquid in and pull it back out depending on the temperature. And even on that coarse grain where those pores are very tightly packed, you're going to have the ability to extract the flavor from those just as well. So for spirits industry coarse grain is just fine for the wine industry that extra fine grain sometimes is is worth seeking and paying a premium for. Um, As far as alternatives, we we purchase all fine grain, so kind of right in the middle there. Um, And because alternatives have so much surface area and and you know side grain and everything else, you're you're gonna get the extractives out of that as well. So That's kind of how grain tightness relates to flavor development.
0: On last week's episode, I I mentioned a bourbon barrel program that I was involved with years ago in which the beer only had a week or two contact time in the barrel. So last week I asked our guest uh, why we were able to extract everything we wanted so quickly. Does that surprise you that we were able to get... um, Character out of a barrel and in, in that sort of a quick turn, and I wonder if that meant that those were extra fine grain.
3: Um, it, I I would say, and Andrew, you can tag onto this if you want. Yeah, I'm not surprised. And you're really what you're really extracting is the leftover whiskey that's in that barrel right. and coming in, and that flavors very quickly. So, so that liquid really does want to come in and combine and be part of that beer. And it does, you know, since it's coming from the inside of the barrel, it does have some barrel flavor with it. Um, but as far as really true kind of oakiness, you're really getting extremely oaked spirit in your beer very quickly.
0: Yeah. Okay. Makes
1: sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. From a spirit standpoint, doesn't fi- you know surprise me at all. You know, we do a lot of double barreling experiments, and most of our barrels that we design uh, to be double. Bar- are going to be you know between three and six weeks i think it was a you know kind of a misconception in the industry that you have to double barrel this stuff for six months to a year um you know to get the correct flavor from it and uh i think extraction happens you know a lot faster um than people think um so you know the the rest the maturation part uh which uh, you know that's a very very slow process but the actual initial extraction um is is pretty rapid and then you know if you're using a bourbon barrel which initially had you know very high proof alcohol in there or a high concentration of alcohol in there and then automatically you're just throwing something with a lower concentration um you know there's still going to be some compounds in there that was, just didn't like that higher alcohol so those are also going to come out pretty quickly as well right. um there's actually there's a there, yeah there's an old technique i think it was uh cognac where they actually proof down they still do this and very, very high-end uh, spirits but they actually proof down in the barrel um, you know, to get that range of flavors, make sure they get all the, uh, all the character from that wood. Hmm.
0: That sounds expensive. Very. Coming up.
1: You know, if somebody had two different toast profiles, maybe you could tell a slight difference, but I don't think it would really translate into big, Sensory differences just because most of those compounds, by the time the beer got
0: to them uh, into the barrel, would have already been depleted. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. <laughs> There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support.
2: Fermentus Saffael W68, the renowned German yeast strain from Feinsteffen, Germany, is ideal for traditional German-style wheat beers. Say you're brewing a Hefewessen, Saffael W68 provides the distinctive character you're looking for Uncle Bison, same answer: Sapphire W68. What about Bisonbach? Wise brewers choose fermentus Sapphire W68 because it offers a medium attenuation, a moderate phenolic aroma that encompasses clove and pepper, and prominent notes of banana and tutti frutti. Yes, tutti frutti. Learn more at bsgcrapbrewing.com. Get
1: to know Proximity Malt.
0: Positively impact your process, product, and profitability with actionable insights from Brew IQ, the industry leading real time fermentation monitoring solution. Visit www.precisionfermentation.com backslash MBAA to start saving time and money today. BSI, your brewing partner since 1996, is your destination for top-quality liquid yeast cultures, lab services, and brewing products. BSI customizes your yeast orders for the perfect healthy pitch rate from a collection of over 300 strains. Most strains ship within seven days, but now try BSI's Express Yeast with industry-favorite strains shipped the next business day. As of 2023, BSI is proud to be a 100% employee-owned business. Professional brewers can call for a free same-day consultation or visit BrewingScience.com to access over 50 years of brewing expertise. Are you sure you're getting the best deal? Visit the Lupulin Exchange, where you can find every hop variety, every brand, and every vendor. Compare prices, reviews, shipping speeds, reliability, and more on over a million pounds shipping direct from every hop merchant and grower in the US. The Lupulin Exchange, one stop, all the hops. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. The District New York Shop Talk is March 4th at Wild East Brewing Company in Brooklyn. District Mid-Atlantic meets March 9th at Honor Brewing Company in Sterling. District Texas meets virtually March 21st. District St. Louis's March shop talk will be at Blue Jay Brewing March 21st. District Philly meets March 22nd at Workhorse Brewing in King of Prussia. District Montreal meets March 27th. The District St. Louis Spring Quarterly Meeting is April 8th. District Northwest meets in beautiful Hood River May 10th and 11th. The Master Brewer's Brewery Maintenance Systems course begins June 6th. It's time to save the date for the 2024 World Brewing Congress. That's August 17th through the 20th in Minneapolis. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. to the show. Let's talk about seasoning and I assume you don't just want to use a f- use fresh oak without some period of conditioning. Depending on,
1: you know, what you're making, it is a very very important step and you know, uh, the minimum that we're going to do is, you know, somewhere around 3 to 6 months. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what it is for wine barrels. Um,
3: um, that's on the bourbon side. On the oak alternative side, we use 18 to 24 months. And then on the wine side, they're looking closer to 24 months.
0: Do you cut it into stays before you season it, or is that afterwards? Before. Yeah, that's what I thought. And then how about when you talk about seasoning, is that always just an air drying process, or is there any heated drying, or how does that work?
3: So it's done out in the yard, and you really do want all the seasons to hit it. You want it to have you know a winter, a summer. Um, you you want it to freeze, get rain, um, all those things uh, and have fungi growing on it and and molecular breakdown. what you're what you're creating is very, very slow, slow, molecular, breakdown. Um now before we bring it in for processing everything's going to go into the kiln but that's not so much you know anything that has to do with seasoning as it is to make sure that everything's at the right humidity before we start processing it because if it's you know too much moisture in it it's not it's not going to do like like we're predicting. So we want to make sure we're starting from the same from the same point with everything we bring in for consistency, and for you know, going through the saws and all of that, you you want your moisture content to be the same.
2: You know, as you add intensity or more seasoning to oak, uh, so intensity of toasting, I believe, uh, you start taking away branches and flavors um, of the chemical makeup of the wood, and then also some of those profiles that you're looking for. So you know, you'll see different levels of of time for seasoning um but the thing is the longer you're seasoning that piece of wood you're also diminishing a lot of that profile and i get a lot of people ask me oh well i want you know 36 or 48 months air seasoned oak and i kind of just like well why
3: <laughs> to me air seasoning you know some places say it needs to be 36 months well maybe it does depending on your climate. If you're not having extreme climate variance, then it might need 36 months of air drying. Uh, in the Midwest, we've done some tests and and looked at what kind of flavors you get, and it takes you know the air the air seasoning takes a lot of harshness and and sort of acrid bad you know negative flavors out of the oak. Um, but to Noah's point there's a there's kind of a peak and a decline and you can season so long that you actually don't have flavor left to play with when you bring it in to toast it. So for us in the Midwest on on the wine side we definitely feel like twenty four months is about all you'd need. Um eighteen months does a pretty good job. You need to to probably have uh Distinctly, two seasons with that—you know, two two winters with that—but um, yes, you can overseason.
0: I imagine, not unlike the malting process, that toasting has a dramatic impact on flavor. Talk about how that process works and what it gets us.
3: Toasting has the biggest influence and the most significant impact on the flavor profile um, than anything that we do in this whole process, um, and that's because it it does what we talked about earlier. It's it's where we add the flame to to make the caramel and to make the vanilla and all those array of flavors, um, the spices, and this is the part that's kind of exciting to me personally because I like I like the different flavors and I like tasting through and and you start with the same base spirit, beer, beverage, wine, and you add different oak and it completely it makes the flavor a hundred percent different. Um so yeah, you add that heat and and there's a time temperature variation where you start with tannin destruction and hemicellulose breakdown and then you start that lignin degradation and then it starts to produce the, the vanilla, the, the vanilla, um and then you start getting into your phenols and your smokes and at the end you have lactone destruction and you can keep this going and you end up with basically a carbon filter ash um, and and nothing so you can you can toast it until you toast toast everything out of it. But I, I just find it fascinating that, you know, you take the temperature up and down or, or apply it in a different way. For example, you could do a convection oven. You could do a, f- a fire toast. You can do infrared. Um, and they're all going to create different flavors. And we, we put different time and temperature parameters on that, and it completely changes the flavor. Um, so, we we do and create different toasts and then and then we do the chemical markers, you know, we test to see what we're coming coming up with, five methyl furforol, furfural, vanillin. you know, your guaiacol, your translactone, cis lactones to name a few, and we know that there are certain aromas and taste profiles that go in specifically with those chemical compounds. Um, we we've gone through several phases where everything was you know chemical analysis um, but we realize now that sensory analysis is just as important Those those chemical compounds tell us what should be there but sometimes in a sensory analysis it's just not um, so it takes both so I go to these trade shows and I and I have samples sitting out and someone will come up and inevitably say oh I want one that's been toasted a really long time and super dark and it's interesting because one of our longest toasts that we have is one of our lightest toasts. It looks like, it looks like it's barely toasted, and yet it's been in the oven for 24 hours, and that's how we get that great flavor development. So when you look at the color of the oak, you really have no idea how it's been toasted and what kind of flavor profile you're going to get out of that. Um, you know, for example, someone will say, "I want this really heavy dark toast." Well, you can create that in five minutes and it's going to taste like very little you can create you can create that in you know 4 hours you can create that in 10 hours it just depends on the temperature of of your heat element it depends on the type of heat you're using you know is it a fire is it a infrared toaster a convection oven um so so I think it's important that people understand that looking at the color of the oak is not going to give you any clue as to what it tastes like, and that you could pull you could pull something that is a really dark toast from one manufacturer and compare it to another, and they're going to taste completely different because there was a different recipe that went in behind it. Um, so so color has has absolutely is not an indicator at all as to what kind of flavor you're going to get.
0: How about giving us some examples of a few different toast profiles?
1: So essentially, you know, when we design these toasts, I mean, you know, we've, we're looking at, for the most part, I mean, you know, hemicellulose it does give you, you know, some different flavors, and we do target that degradation of that that uh, uh, that polymer for some. I mean, basically, you know, high caramel, high toast. I mean, those are the kind of characters are going to come from hemicellulose. But uh, you know, a lot of the work that I do um, in spirits, at least, is centered around um lignin degradation chain so you know we'll use havanella for an example um, when lignin starts to degrade and it's not quite as black and white as this so for instance what I mean by that is you know first lignin will do you know vanillin then it'll go to eugenol then smoke I mean that is true to a certain extent but you can have vanillin and still get eugenol. Uh, you can have smoke and still get some eugenol as well. So essentially what we do is we know exactly what temperatures produce the highest concentrations of those compounds. So, um, you know, when we have a toast like high vanilla, it's essentially one time, one temperature, and that time is a super long time. It basically develops that compound in higher concentrations through the depth of that stave. Um You know, we have infrared toast, uh, which, you know, compared to these convection oven toasts are quite short. Um, You know, convection oven toasts can go up to, as Amy said, to 24 hours. The infrared toasts, um, they are pretty intense uh, and they're pretty short. Um, So, again, what that does, uh, it gives you some of the hotter characters on the darker characters on the top of the stay, But then underneath it, it produces a nice gradient. Right. So you have a lot of different flavors kind of built in.
3: And then like we have a, we have a stave called high mocha and that is a toast that's, it's, it's short and high temperature for one part of it. But then in another part, we can we take it to a more moderate temperature and, and change that up. So, you know, we're not stuck in one temperature for, you know, one temperature and one time parameter. Those are not the only things we can move that temperature up and down. Um, We can do different things like a double toast where you're going to infrared toast and convection toast. Um, So, stacking of flavors in that way. um, There's really no limit to it. And there's a lot of science behind, like Andrew said, knowing which temperature and time is going to give you which profile. Um, But then there's a lot of finessing when you go in and say, okay, I want to target the flavor caramel. You know, that's complex and it takes a while to to actually narrow that down. We we kind of know a starting point. Okay, we think at this time and this temperature, it's gonna do this and you play with it a while and hone it down until you until you get the recipe that is is giving the results that you're looking for.
1: You know, I think if you take the time to look and understand, you know, flavor development that comes, uh, you know, from oak alternatives and, you know, recognize that the science does hold true, You can start to tailor whatever you're putting into those barrels in a very, very specific manner. Um, You know, from oak, there's a lot of different compounds, there's a lot of different possibilities. Um, And we've studied those possibilities for the past 15 to 20 years, and we've kind of developed, um, you know, a playbook, so to speak. So if somebody says, hey, you know, we've got this idea for a beer, we want to give it a nice vanilla character, you know, we want to do this, we can go, well, actually, you know, we've shown that. Uh, You know, if you do, if you do X instead of Y or Y instead of X, you can get a higher vanillin content, um, you know, in that alternative. Um, So there is a right way to do things. Um, There is a wrong way to do things. And, you know, it just depends on kind of understanding the science and understanding the development of these flavor molecules or flavor compounds within the oak wood.
0: Is there any kind of um, universal marking system of that indicates what the level of a toast and and or seasoning is for a given barrel? So like I'm just thinking about brewers who are maybe purchasing, you know, used spirit barrels and, and want to understand what exactly it is they're working with. Is there a magic decoder ring for them to use or are they kind of relying on information from whoever they get it from?
2: Yeah. So I mean when it comes to spirit barrels, you know, the majority are obviously gonna be a char number 3 to number 4. Uh there are toasted barrels out there, but um as far as like the major brands that are out there that have them, you know, like Woodford Reserve double oak, Jim Beam double oak. Uh those ones <clears throat> are going to be the toast and then charred. And then as far as a coating on the barrel, no. Uh traditionally you don't see it unless it just depends on the cooperage and how they mark the barrels. But a lot of the times, people—and correct me if I'm wrong, Amy or Andrew—but I think a lot of people sometimes don't want folks to know what their level of toast or char is because there's others out there that sometimes try to replicate profile. I think that's on a very small scale, but um, it, but in particular, uh, as far as whiskey or bourbon barrels go, no, it's not really ever defined on the barrel. You just have to kind of know the product. Understand and, and really know the producer, and work closely with some of these producers um, to understand their processes. You're not necessarily giving away their secret if you're telling somebody has a toasted barrel or anything, but um, to define the the, the level, uh, usually you might see like a number three or a number four on the barrel. Uh, but I know on some of the ISC barrels, it might have uh, some definition on there. But particularly with wine barrels, you can usually tell because it'll say uh it'll have a letter M and then a plus, or it will just say medium plus, or it will say, uh, just medium or heavy toast or something along those lines. So, just to expand on that a little bit further,
1: you know, in terms of you know barrels go and barrel aging, you know, like I said before, the extraction process. Um, at least the extractives from a Cooper's standpoint. And what I mean by that is the ones that we create through toasting, char and there's extractives being created inside the barrel, but there's, you know, also due to other processes like ethanolysis and hydrolysis and that kind of stuff. But you know, from the from the from the concept of just toasting or charring, you know, the spirit's gonna be in that barrel for, you know, I would say on average at least four years. Um, you know, by the time that time is or you know, by the time that's passed most of these extractives that you would get from a toast profile um, are going to be depleted, so I'm not really sure exactly how much influence that has coming over into the into the barrel-aged beer world. Um, so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't think you could really, you know, if somebody had two different toast profiles, maybe you could tell a slight difference, but I don't think it would really translate into big sensory differences, just because most of those compounds, by the time the beer got to them uh, into the barrel, would have already been depleted.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. And then the and other thing is, you know, the type of beer that's going into that barrel, that kind of plays a role into the profiles you're also going to get, I think, in my in my opinion. It, 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 and that's why
1: I'm such a big believer in the oak alternatives for beer is just because, you know, I think the longer you age beer, I think you, you create some complications. Um, you know, the oak alternative is just straight, you know, virgin oak flavor, and you can get really really specific you know with a with a you know a char four you know barrel or a char three barrel i mean you kind of take what you get right maybe you can carve it out and re it or something like that but the oak alternatives gives you the exact same barrel flavors um as the barrel would um it's just a little bit more efficient a little bit more precise
0: and when you say alternatives you're talking about like the chips and the other products that are that just that are made from barrels but that aren't barrels right Right, correct. Okay.
3: Which brings us to the question: Why is it called oak alternatives? It's not an alternative to oak. It it's should still be oak, called right? a barrel. <laughs> it should be called a barrel alternative. That's right. That's right. But I can't go back and rename what the industry has has deemed it to be.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. I don't know if we, and maybe this this really kind of touches on sort of some of what you just said, but um, you know, we hear about sort of the positive oxidative effects in barrel aging. Uh, which is a, a little counterintuitive since brewers are trained to hunt down and eliminate oxygen pretty much everywhere else in their process. Do you want to talk at all about the oxidative uh, oxidation in, in barrel-aged beer? I mean, I can
1: talk to you about the oxidative properties of barrels and how it, um, you know, I guess... that barrel makes a conducive environment for that um you know as far as the oxidation you know what's going on inside the beer the interaction of oxygen with beer i don't think i'm the best person to speak on that but i mean yes uh, a used bourbon barrel definitely does provide you a vessel that will provide um you know that that oxygenation right i mean you know about 65 percent uh of the oxygen coming in uh, to barrel-aged spirits is going to be right to the joints, right? Those joints are not as tight as everybody thinks they so. are. They hold liquid, uh, but the oxygen transmission rate is quite high there. Um, so you will get some of that oxygen coming in, and you will have interactions. Um, but I- I'm not really sure how much I can speak to it past that in terms of, you know, what brewers are looking for, what they're not looking for. I can tell you in the spirits world, uh, you know, it's a great thing. A lot of the flavor development processes that happen after, um, the initial extraction period are largely uh, right, immensely dependent on the oxygen transmission through the staves, through the barrel, through the bung. Uh, so in the spirits world, definitely a positive. Uh, but I, you know, I've heard the same thing for the beer. It's just maybe not so great on the beer side.
0: That's interesting. Well, do you see uh, a larger demand in the oak alternative products uh, for that reason? I wonder. You know, from from brewers, or or have you not experienced that?
3: I'm starting to see a lot more people look at it and question it, and and answer that question with, "Huh, this is a lot easier." Uh, maybe I'll look at it a little more in depth, and and I think people are starting to have some success with it, and and realize that it it is quite effective and quite clean and quite easy to use. So um, there there has been an increase recently, and. In, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I'd love to see some, maybe some trials, get some brewers to, you know, do some aging uh, in a barrel versus, uh, you know, uh, an alternative and, and see, uh, do some sensory on it and see what the differences really are. I'm sure somebody out there has done that. I, um, would, you know- I would be
1: interested in that myself. I mean, you know, it's two totally different types of flavor development. I mean, with the barrel alternatives, I mean, you're strictly getting really nice, clean, size of flavor with um you know the barrel that used barrels i mean yeah you're going to get some tannins some lactones and stuff like that some leftover vanillin uh but you know i think a large contributor to that or i know a large contributor whatever was held in the barrel previously uh which is not something obviously you're going to get with the the barrel alternative side but it, it is two different types of flavor development you know i think one of the cool things you know about alternatives and it kind of offers a little bit different direction than barrel aging is that and again you know i'm not a beer expert by any means but you know from what i can imagine is you know if somebody's going to make a barrel aged beer they're going to say okay well we're going to brew this beer that's going to have to you know complement this barrel because the barrel is essentially I mean, that is what it is right you i mean you can do some stuff to it if you go about it but a used bourbon barrel is essentially a used bourbon barrel but with alternatives you can say okay how can i create these alternatives to complement this mash bill so it kind of works the other way around which i think provides a lot of room for a lot of innovation and a lot of new flavor possibilities and i'm kind of excited and hopefully and and i'm hoping that you know this bearing the beer world kind of gets to the point that the spirits world has now what i mean by that is you know a lot of these distiller guys they've you know we've got out there we've taught them the material we've taught them the science and they're developing their own toasts uh, and they're developing their own barrels from the ground up to fit very very specific spirits uh, that makes my, you know really really fun and I think it provides you know customers a lot of new flavors a lot of new products and I think it just you know overall raises the water for everybody so uh, I'm, I'm hoping that's the direction it kind of heads just because it just I think it just leads to better products for everybody
0: That was Amy LaHue, Andrew Weebrink, and Noah Steingraber here on the Master Brewers Podcast. If you enjoyed this interview, check out the Oak 101 presentation they gave at District Michigan. Look for a link in the show notes. Of Are you enjoying the Master Brewers Podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Proximity Malt, BSG, Precision Fermentation, and the Lupulin Exchange. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support.